We are starting a new series this morning. We just finished last week. We finished the fruit of the spirit. I notice I said fruit, not fruits. Just a little kind of reminder there. It is one fruit of many different parts, uh, different virtues that we, uh, again, I hope was good. I hope was uh, helpful for self-reflection, for self-evaluation of where we actually land on all these things. Uh, But we're starting a new series, uh, and really what we're doing is we're doing an elaborate or expanded version of our IBC membership curriculum. Uh, I know there's been a handful of families that have come in going, hey, I want to become a member. And so just so you know up front, by participating consistently or regularly through this sermon series, this will kind of allow you to kind of be on the road to becoming an official church member of IBC if that is your desire, and your leading. Um, but we'll be talking about all kinds of things. We're going to be talking about the vision of the church, the mission of the church, what is church membership, why we uh, still emphasize it, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, uh, what is a healthy church member. We're going to be going through our statement of faith. One conviction that I have kind of been more and more compelled with is that we can oftentimes assume that we all get it when, in fact, we may not. You know, we may even in membership class go, yeah, yeah, I agree to the statement of faith, but do we really understand what we're agreeing to? And so we're going to take the time to unpack, you know, do I understand the triunity of God? By the way, I'm still having my mind wrap around that whole concept myself. But we accept things even though we don't always fully understand them. But we are going to go through our statement of faith. These are the core or foundational truths of what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. But before we even get to all those different components, this morning we are going to talk about what is the church? What is the church? You know, um, I just got to tell you up front, when, as I was preparing this sermon, I have reorganized my notes over and over and over again, and I have been thinking about this topic for quite a few weeks. And, you know, some passages of Scripture, are you just go look forward to really preaching. This is one of those messages. At the same time, it is also one of those messages that has been very weighty or heavy because there is a lot to say, and I have very little time to say it. But when you look at through Scripture, when we ask the question, what is the church? I mean, Scripture gives us all sort of metaphorical uh, illustrations or uh, pictures as to what the church is. For example, when we think about the church, it's referred to as the body of Christ. We think about Jesus, when it talks about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is also referred to as the head of the church. So we have a body and we have a head. The church is also referred to as the bride of Christ and therefore Christ being the groom. The church is called the household or the family of God. We see that the church is the temple of God, is the flock of God. The church is the kingdom of God. The church is a pillar for truth. But what is the church? What is your understanding of the church? I did a lot of reading on this. I read multiple books in preparation for this one sermon. And I did a lot of reflecting. And honestly, I still come to the point going, I still need another another year or so to kind of really wrap my mind around this whole concept. Probably a lifetime, I guess. On one hand, it's very simple. On the other hand, it's very difficult and complex. 
So I'm going to put things down in a, a simplistic form, but at the same time we'll understand why it's also can be difficult to live out. You know, there's various ideas about what the church is, or there's various ideas about what constitutes uh, an actual church, quote-unquote. Uh, some people will say that church is just the plural form of Christian. In other words, you have an individual Christian, and then you have, if you have more than one, then you have what you call a church, where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst, right? And so we could call that even a church, perhaps. Some people think that it's a building on the corner of Laurel and Alvers. By the way, that's this address right here, <laughs> if you didn't know where you're going. Some people think that it's just the worldwide body of Christians. You know, it's the collective body of all people who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. That is what the church is. Now, there's also various reasons why people even attend or, or even seek to be a, an active participant in a church. Some people will go to a church because that's where they meet loving and maybe ethically-minded people. I mean, some people will think that God will bless me and my pursuits if I do show up to church. Maybe people, some people say that it, it makes my spouse happier when I come to church. Wait, why did I see heads turn? Some people will say it's when and where I get my spiritual pick-me-up. Some people will say it's, it, I attend this particular or specific church because it meets my felt needs or it meets my family's needs. In my reading and study and, and reflection also, uh, I came across many reasons why people don't like the church, or at least their specific church. There's many reasons why people have become dissatisfied with the church, uh, and as a result, have usually stopped participating or even attending in, for some reason. Some people, uh, there, there's been labeled, kind of thrown out there, the church is lame crowd, Right? The church is lame because of the poor leadership, because of the poor music, because of the poor preaching. Sorry in advance. Because it seems too inbred. It seems like there's too much white hair present. It's too out of touch with relevant issues. It's too political. It's not political enough. It's all about money. There's all kinds of reasons why the people will associate or decide or justify the reasons for not gathering as a church. Some people will say that, well, it's not that I think it's lame. I will just say it's kind of just boring. The sermons are too long. They're too dogmatic or they're too superficial. Maybe the worship sounds too much like a dirge than kind of a pick-me-up. The services are too monotonous and maybe even predictable. Maybe we just feel we don't get much out of it. Some people will say, well, it just it lacks the community that I'm looking for. I can't seem to connect with anyone or no one is pursuing me. This came up quite often. People would say that I'm just tired of institutions. Now, Obviously, I think not to throw millennials under the bus because this is true of all demographics and generations, but there's a, an increasing dissatisfaction or, uh, with, with institutions and, and there's kind of a disenfranchisement or there's a dissatisfaction with uh, kind of the or I guess a growing discontentment and a growing awareness of, of the, the anti-establishment motivation. And as a result, different conclusions are made from these kind of perspectives of the church. For example, the existence of a church building can challenge people's anti-establishment desire. 
For example, when we think about a church building, a church building may seem to run contrary to what is true or what the true authentic church really is or should or is supposed to be. After all, did not the church, the early church, the first church begin in homes, right? Isn't that, isn't that the purest form of what it means to be a church? I don't want to spend too much time on that point, but I'd like to address a couple things about it because it comes up, it came up in all my different readings and I've heard it in conversation as well. First of all, let me just say right up front that yes, the early church did meet in homes primarily, but not in homes exclusively. In other words, uh, they still attended, they, they, people, the believers, even in the early church, the first church still attended synagogue very often. And if you look at the archaeology records of the early church and the house church movement, some of these Roman uh, courtyards were very large. They would be the size of most small churches in the country today. And so you could fit 70, 80, 90 people. In fact, archaeologists are still digging up remains where they see all the Christian symbols that were uh, kind of uh, iconic for where believers would gather on a regular basis. Some of them were very large rooms. Not to mention, we also, it's important to understand too that the reason the early Christians met in homes was not because it was a pure form of religious expression. It wasn't because somehow Jesus ordained this for his church. It was because Christianity was illegal. The reason why early Christians met in homes is because to meet in a public building like such as this was not an option. Even the underground church today in China, secretly meets in homes, but even there, they long for a building. I just read an article uh, last week about this on the Gospel Coalition website, and uh, there's, there's a guy who spent most of his life in China, even with the underground church, and he says, this is the spirit, this is the attitude of Christians there. They, yes, they meet in homes by necessity, but they long for the day of religious freedom where they could also have a building and come together at once where they didn't have to do, do the whole secret thing. That's what they actually long for. So they, they don't meet in homes because, again, that's a, a pure form of what it means to be the church. They meet in homes just by the mere fact of persecution. Let me add one more little tidbit to this point. By definition, Institution means a society or organization, whether it be educational, social, religious, political, whatever. It's an, it's an society or organization that shares the same values and comes together for a common purpose. That's what it means to be an institution. You share the same values and you come together for a common purpose. What that means is whether a church is a mega church with a large building or a small church, it is still institutional. Whether, whether, a ch- whether you have 2,000 people or 20 people, you, still, you are still institutional because you share the same values and have the same or common purpose. Yet, there are a, an increasing or a growing number of ex-churchgoers who no longer gather with their church because they desire maybe a more pure or more relevant context that feels less institutional, less corporate, less organized, less 
programmed. In fact, in my, one of the books I read by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Kluck, they published this book back in 2009, and I think it became more relevant as the years have gone on. So it, in 2009, it was relevant. It's an even more relevant today, but it's called, a book called Why We Love the Church. This is Kevin DeYoung speaking because they kind of went back and forth in writing this. They said that many contemporary church critics leave the institutional church with its buildings and programs and paid staff and go to serve at the homeless shelter instead, never stopping to think that someone pays the bills for this building, someone turns, in the, turns on the heat in the morning, and someone maintains a calendar of events every month. The church leavers can feel good tithing to the nonprofit of their choice, never stopping to think that this super, this super spiritual, super cool outfit has a board of directors and an accountant and, if, and, it, and filled with paperwork to become a 501c3 back in the day. He goes on to say, consistency is not always a postmodern virtue. And nowhere is this more aptly displayed than in the barrage of criticisms leveled against the church. The church's lame crowd hates Constantine and notions of Christendom, but they want the church to be a patron of the arts and run after-school programs and bring the world together in peace and love. They bemoan the over-programmed church, but they think of a hundred complex, resource-hungry things the church should be doing. They don't like the church because it is too hierarchical, but they hate it when it has poor leadership. They wish the church could be more diverse, but they leave, when they leave to meet in a coffee shop with other educated 30-somethings who are into film festivals, NPR, and carbon offsets. I like the way he worded that. They want, a more, they want more of a family spirit, but too much family, and they complain that the church is inbred. They want the church to know that its reputation with outsiders is terrible, they want to know that their reputation outside is terrible, but then are critical when the church is too concerned with appearances. They chide the church for not doing more to address social problems, but then complain when the church is too political. They want the church unity and decry all our denominations, but fail to see the irony in the fact that they have left to do their own thing because they can't find a single church that can satisfy them. They are critical of a lack of community in the church, but then want services that allow for individualized worship experiences. They want leaders with vision, but they don't want anyone to tell them what to do or how to think. I could keep going on and on, but you get the point. The fact is, there's all kinds of perspectives, there's all kinds of reasons, there's all kinds of perceptions and attitudes of the church. I think it's important that we ask this question, however. What is the church as Scripture defines it? What is the the church supposed to be? What is the church that God instituted or established 2,000 years ago before before he ascended, really actually because of his ascension into heaven and he compelled his disciples to go and make disciples? What is the church biblically defined supposed to be? I do want to say up front that I don't have time to cover every topic on this, this very large topic um, but I do want to put forward a definition that will kind of breeze through very quickly. And really, my, my desire this morning is to plant seeds and to start the conversation. Because I hope it's a fluid conversation. So we have a, a slide here. I don't have my little clicker here, but Megan's going to put up our definition of 
this is something that I've been kind of morphing and putting together and restating. So again, it's not the end-all exhaustive definition, but this is kind of what I've come up with. The church consists of all true believers worldwide at any time in history and expresses itself as a God-ordained local assembly of believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who regularly gather for the purpose of worship, teaching, fellowship, sacraments, prayer, and service, and who have been commissioned to make disciples that make disciples. That is what the church is. Now let's break that down kind of clause by clause. The first point I want to make, which is the next slide, is the church consists of all true believers worldwide at any time in history. This is most commonly referred to as the the invisible in the universal church. And the believers here that we're referring to here is anyone uh, in any part of the world at any time in history who believes in the one true God and obeys him. That's an important qualification, by the way. It's not just someone who adheres to right doctrine. It's not just someone who believes that there's a God in heaven that exists. It's someone who believes in the one true God and obeys him. After all, we get this picture in Revelation chapter 7, right? John the Apostle, he gives us this picture of kind of an end times reality, of what we can anticipate one day that you and I will participate in firsthand. In fact, it's the first time the universal church meets or assembles together in Revelation chapter 7. We assemble in little pockets all over the place, and I'll get to that in a moment. But it's the first time the entire family of God comes together and worships King Jesus. It includes all those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's all believers who have received their eternal inheritance. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be gathered together before the throne of King Jesus. So, what is the church on a broad scale? The church consists of all true believers worldwide at any time in history. I do want to say just real quick time out. You could say the church is everywhere from Pentecost till the return of Christ. You could also easily argue that as well. And the reason for that is the church age began at Pentecost. And we would say that believers in Jesus Christ are the true believers in God. Of course, I think for the sake of simplicity, I'm including everyone prior to Pentecost as well. So we're talking about all true believers in the one true God and who obey God. But secondly, let's bring it down a deeper level here. The church is also expresses itself, and this is the next slide here. The church expresses itself as a God-ordained local assembly of believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This local assembly that is uh, represented in this definition is all believers uh, shared really kind of this, uh, are commonly referred to as the visible and the local church. So we talked about the universal church and it's invisible, not because it's always invisible, but it's people that we don't know. There's believers in Jesus Christ, there's brothers and sisters in Christ, even Anthony Sacker's coming back. There are Christians in, in Liberia that we don't know. There are Christians in Uganda that we don't know, but they, we will one day know. They're invisible to us, but they exist. And God is calling all people from all nations to himself. 
But this local assembly of believers is referred to as the visible and the local church. And it's most often referred to by its geography. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, all the churches were known by its city or region. The churches of Galatia, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Corinth. There was multiple churches within those cities. Again, multiple house churches within those cities, but they were all referred to as the church of Corinth or the church of Thessalonica. Today, we would translate that as, we would kind of know the local church by name, and probably its address. IBC is, is a, one of the local churches in the city of Port Angeles. We used to actually have in our name the Independent Bible Church of Port Angeles. That's how we were recognized. That's how we, re, re, we were referred to. But I think there are a couple important clarifications or identifications about the local church that need to be recognized. First of all, this is very important. The local church is not an address. The local church is not an address. It is a people. In fact, when you think of the literal definition of church, one of the common understandings or, def- or interpretations is that it uh, refers to as the called out ones. The church is the called out ones. The church is people. Sometimes we have to kind of relearn our, our conversations. We have to relearn our, our statements. We have to relearn how to speak because oftentimes, and I'm just as guilty of it, not that it's a guilt thing or anything, but I often say we're going to go to church. Now we understand what that means, but sometimes we could be a little more explicit in our language, right? We could say we are going to gather with our church because the church is people. We go to an address, but we gather with people. Now, you might say I'm kind of splitting hairs here, but sometimes it's amazing how our theology can take a whole life of its own based on a little nuance. We gather with our church because the church is people. And the local church is a people that share a common faith. So we're not just gathering with just anybody, but this particular gathering is centered around a common faith, specifically a faith where Jesus is both Savior and Lord of our lives. Those two points are very critical as well. Again, there is not time to go into it. They're separate sermons by themselves. But the local church is a group of people that gather together, that share a common faith, specifically a faith that is centered around the, the, the salvation or as Jesus as both Savior and Lord of their lives. Now, it's interesting, of their lives is also a very important qualification because Jesus is Savior and Lord regardless of him being your Savior or Lord. He is already Savior and he is already Lord, but that does not necessarily mean he's your Savior or Lord. What unites us together, what binds us together as a church is that he is our Savior. He's our Lord. That is why we have fellowship with one another. 
I think it raises another point of clarification that I need to highlight here is that although the universal church, right, it consists of all true believers worldwide and any time in history, the local church can, exi- can consist of both believers or followers of Jesus Christ as well as unbelievers. So on one hand, God knows all those who belong to him, but that just because you are sitting here this morning does not necessarily mean that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It does not necessarily mean that you are here because Jesus is both your Savior and your Lord. The church can be a mix of both. Now, the true church is only those who belong to Jesus, but the local church can just by the very nature of people coming in. And we would hope that would happen because the point of coming in would that they would be confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ and they would respond favorably to the good news of Jesus Christ. But the local church, the visible church, shares a common faith, specifically a faith that centers around the salvation of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. But it is not just limited to that either. It's an important component or detail, but there's another component or detail that needs to be kind of going a, a level deeper, and that's the next slide there, Megan. The local church regularly gathers for the, re, for the purpose of worship, for teaching, for fellowship, for sacraments, for prayer, and for service. Let me just quickly just gloss through some of these components. First of all, the local church gathers regularly. The local church gathers regularly. It means that there's a, there's a shared value, there's a, a shared commitment to be together in person on a consistent basis. Again, the, what church literally means is not just called out ones, but it means to assemble, it means congregation, it means meeting, it means gathering. So when we think about church, we are gathering with the people of God physically. That is what it, that's the very definition of church And so what makes someone part of a Christ-centered church is the fact that they show up when the church assembles. What makes you a part of a church is when you show up physically when the church assembles. Now, I know there's a live stream audience, and some of them are tuned in right now. Some of them will tune in later. So I'm also speaking to you as well. And I know know there's all kinds of reasons why you're at home or whatever it may be, but in the end, the, the ideal sense regardless of circumstances that surround us, is that we would gather physically. This is what Hebrews talks about in chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I already get the chance to highlight our live stream tech gurus back there because, again, they are serving the body of Christ and they are very invisible. By the way, if they become visible, something's wrong. So the fact that they're invisible means they're doing everything right. And we're super grateful for that. I'm thankful that we can reach people all around the world. And I know there's people, different brothers and sisters from different mission partnerships that we have that are tuning in. Welcome. We love you. 
I know there are people in our church family right now that are live streaming because of, you know, there's a spike in COVID cases and maybe they are, 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 have a lot of physical ailments and they're t- kind of taking a precautionary approach. So they're staying home. That's great. I'm glad we can serve you. But, but, how do I put this nicely? There are some who do not gather because they love PJ Church. They love the comfort of their lazy boy and their their freshly made latte. I think it's interesting that even in this kind of 18 months of pandemic, there are been, there's been some good habits that have formed and there's been some poor habits that have formed. I know there was a lot of disruption in the beginning and there's you know, things, and in a sense, from our perspective, we were doing the best we could, managing and being flexible, being considerate of all people. But I think, unfortunately, as a consequence, there was also some poor habits developed. When we went into that live stream model where we had everybody kind of form into life groups and that's what we did for a time being, then we were able to come back. And it was like, yes, we're back. But that word got smaller because some people didn't come back. They're like, we kind of like the gradually get up thing and we're just going to do church at home. But again, the church is the physical gathering of the saints at the same place and at the same time. Now granted, there are, always, there are good excuses. There are good reasons to stay home. I get that. But there are also a lot of poor reasons as well. And perhaps I should be looking at that camera right now and saying some of you need to come back because you don't have a good reason. Some of you have stayed away just because of complacency or comfort. The idol of comfort is rampant, especially within the church. The church gathers regularly, and what for what purpose? Well, as Hebrew, the Hebrews passage already, already told us, we, we gather for the sake of encouraging one another by our love for one another and by our service to one another. In other words, the way in which we fulfill the one another commands in Scripture, as well as, as, well as the, the way in which we exercise our God-given gifts by the Holy Spirit is when we are physically present with one another. Yes, technology is great. Yes, we can do that in so many other ways. It's not just about Sunday morning. I get that. But Sunday morning is a strategic time. It's a built-in time in our schedule in which we gather regularly. Life is going all over the place. This is a time in which we get to come together. I'll, I'll talk about that more in just a second. So we get to love one another as we're called. We get to serve one another as we're called. But we also, the scripture tells us that we come together physically and regularly for the purpose of worship, for teaching, for fellowship, for sacraments, and for prayer. 
I mean, if you look at the kind of the the purest or original definition that we oftentimes refer to in Acts chapter 2, we see that they, they, the Christians, the saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That's what their priority list was. That's what they were consumed with. That's how they spent their time. They came to worship. Did you know that we're all worshipers? Every one of us is a worshiper. We're created to worship, in fact. In fact, it's, it's really a part of our intrinsic design in creation. We are worshipers. We're, and guess what? We're always worshiping. We're always worshiping. The question is, what are we worshiping and who are we worshiping? We can't help but not worship because that's who we are. That's how God has made us. But as I was reminded of in a recent article that I get sent to me, Justin Earley said this, we worship what we love. We worship what we love. And we are always becoming what we pay attention to. We gather to worship. Why? Because worship, especially Christian worship, directs our attention off of us and on to God. It's a means that to, to usher into us into the presence of God. It's how we express our gratitude and our love for our Savior. It's a means of reminding us of what is true and what is right and what is righteous. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let, us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So worship is what we do. We're always doing it, but we have a built-in clock, a built-in rhythm, a built-in schedule in which we come together and we begin and we bring our attention back onto the worship of our Savior and our King. Left to ourselves, we oftentimes don't do that. We need the accountability, in other words. But we also come for teaching. Teaching also ushers us into the presence of God by coming under the authority of Scripture. You know this verse, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word of God, the ministry of Scripture is crucial to our transformation. We cannot experience spiritual or Christ-like transformation apart from the ministry of the word. There's a reason why the, when it says the first thing that the, 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 the people, the saints, the Christians were devoted to were the apostles' teaching. As Jesus even prayed in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. It's the word of God that sanctifies us or transforms us into his likeness. The fact is, we also need to understand everything in life is forming us. Everything we're involved with is forming us. It's shaping us. It's influencing us. I like to say it's, it's discipling us. Everything we're involved with disciples us. Abby and I were, uh, went to a wedding yesterday. 
And we were listening to a little podcast on the way out to Gig Harbor there. And um, the guy who was speaking was talking about the fact that we're all really kind of in a current. He was talking about his son who was, loves to just bob in the ocean but, and just sit there. And all the boys have their own personalities. But his one son just likes to kind of sit in the, the water. But over time, he just starts going down the beach. And they have to run after him and pick him up because guess what? Nothing is static. And eventually, the current ever so subtly just kind of takes him down the beach and they have to run down and kind of pull him out of the water because he's all of a sudden 100 yards away. And such is true with everything else in life. We're all in the current. Everything is taking us somewhere. Everything is forming us or discipling us. We become what we pay attention to. So the question is, is the ministry of the word, is the scripture, are we devoting ourselves to the ministry of the word so that it also and more profoundly shapes us, transforms us, renews us? Paul says this in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds primarily through the ministry of the word. I gotta go quickly. Fellowship. We gather for fellowship. We might refer to this as community or who we do life with. You know, when you marry somebody, you automatically gain a a new family member, whether you like it or not. Even at the the wedding yesterday, it was mentioned in the reception, is it's like, as well, Mike Jones, I'm looking at you because you officiated the, the wedding for your granddaughter. As Kelsey was called out during some of the little um, speeches, the father comes up and goes like, hey, I just want to welcome you to the family. At one time, she was not a part of the family, and now she's a part of the family. And like life for Dustin, he is a part of the family. He gained family members, in other words, by this union, this covenant union called marriage. The same happens in our spiritual family. When we are saved by Jesus Christ, when we, have, when, when we have received the gift of eternal life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you are automatically, you automatically gain a spiritual family. You gain brothers and sisters that you did not once have. You belong to God's family, and there's always this kind of this unique bond, isn't there? I mean, even when you go international and stuff, and I know you probably, Anthony, have experienced this all the time. Obviously, you too, Pastor Tom. You go around and you just kind of meet people and it doesn't have to be an international setting either. You can go anywhere. You can be at the airport somewhere. You can be across country. You can be in another part of the state. It doesn't matter. But the moment you meet a random stranger and all of a sudden find out they're reading their Bible or something and you're like, are we brothers? There's, there's an immediate connection that you experience, right? All of a sudden you're like, I don't even know who you are, but it doesn't matter. You automatically go from first base to like, third and a half base, not in a, you know, any other sense other than the fact, don't read into that illustration. This is what happens when you pull things off the top of your head. But you immediately have this bond. You're just like, we're brothers, we're sisters in Christ. This is amazing. And even though we may never see each other again, we're going to spend forever together. This crazy little intersection that we could have never anticipated or planned. It's amazing how God sometimes 
on purpose, plans those into our lives at very strategic times. But there's an immediate bond that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I think it's important to qualify real quickly. There's all kinds of community. There's all kinds of fellowship. You can find it anywhere. You can find it at the work. You can find it at restaurants. You can find it at bars. You can find it at clubs. You can find it with shared interest groups and hobbies. All those things have a kind of a built-in community to them or fellowship of some kind to them. But what makes Christian fellowship distinctly Christian is that it is centered on Christ and a shared desire for the things of Christ. So what makes Christian fellowship unique is that it's all about Jesus. And can I just use this as an opportunity to just encourage you? It's okay to talk about 30,000 other things in life. Can I just encourage you? Don't end on the surface. Go deep with each other. One of the questions I've been more and more compelled to ask people, and it kind of gets people kind of caught off guard, and I don't mean to do that to you, but I genuinely want to know, is what has the Lord been teaching you lately? It's not to put them on the spot or make them uncomfortable, like, oh man, <laughs> next time we're there, I better have something to say. That's not what I'm saying. But I think if we were to encourage one another more, like, what is God teaching you? Not only do we receive blessing and benefit by hearing what God is doing in your life, but it allows us to go deep with each other because Christian fellowship is centered on Christ and the things of Christ. We can talk about fishing. We can talk about football season that has just begun. That's fine. I pray, can, I pray that it goes much deeper than that, though. And for some of you, I know you are incredibly, incredible examples of in-depth conversation. A couple of other things very quickly. When we gather, we observe the sacraments, specifically the sacrament of baptism, which we will have at our annual celebration, by the way, and the sacrament of communion. There is always a need to come back to the cross of Jesus. We're not going it this morning, but there's a reason why we've kind of more regularly inserted communion in our time of worship because we need to constantly come back to the cross of Jesus, what he accomplished for us on our behalf. You see, everything in life, like I said, is taking us away. We're in a current, and unless we apply effort, that current is going to take us down many different ways. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's just not true of the author. That's true of all of us. So we gather to worship. We gather to come under the authority of the teaching through God's word. We gather to to fellowship. We gather for the sacraments. And finally, we gather for prayer. We gather to pray. Do you realize that the very act of prayer communicates that you are acknowledging your dependence on God to act? The very fact that we pray without even realizing it, you're saying, God, I need you to show up. I need you to intervene. I need you to act in some way, shape, or form. It's a, it's a response of dependence. 
Not only does it usher you into the presence of God, yes, not only are we compelled or even commanded to in Scripture to pray, but the very fact of praying says, God, I need you. It's short, and I'll be honest with you, this is what convicted me as I was processing this point. What does my lack of prayer communicate? Because if prayer communicates a dependence on God, and I don't, if I'm not consistently in prayer, then what does that say about my dependence on God? At least my recognized dependence. That's what the Lord was convicting me on most recently. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. One final purpose of the church, and I'm not going to spend any time on this because we're going to go deep in it in a couple weeks, but the church has been commissioned to make disciples everywhere. Not only is it how we, communic- how we commune and, and experience fellowship here, but it's also what we've been commissioned or compelled to go and do. And I won't spend any time, like, as I said, but we've all been commissioned to gossip the good news. It's the only good form of gossip out there. To gossip means to share. It's just we got something good to share this time. And it's true, and everybody needs it. It is necessary, it is kind, and it is true, right? And so we are called, we are commissioned to gossip the good news. The church consists of all true believers worldwide at any time in history and expresses itself as a God-ordained local assembly of believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who regularly gather for the purpose of worship, teaching, fellowship, sacraments, prayer, and service, and who have been commissioned to make disciples that make disciples. Here's what has been weighing heavy on me, though. If this is what the church is, ideally, if this is what constitutes the church, I do believe that our current spiritual climate of the church is being heavily attacked. I believe the church is being heavily attacked. And the primary culprit is not the government. And it's not governmental mandates. Now the primary culprit of the strife and division that we experience in the church, both at IBC and around the globe, is that we have a cunning and insidious enemy. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle. We, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against one another. It's not people and governments and all kinds of structures. That's not our struggle. Our struggle against, is against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, there are puppets. But our ultimate struggle is not the horizontal distractions that oftentimes consume our attention. Now we have an enemy referred to in many different ways. Satan, the father of lies, the accuser. 
and I believe he's using COVID, and I believe he's using governmental mandates and all the other stuff as strategic distractions and effective weapons to cause division in his church. And we've experienced it in this church. The fact is, our enemy does not want us to gather. Our enemy does not want us to worship together. Our enemy does not want us to experience fellowship and unity with one another. Our enemy does not want us to come under the authoritative teaching of Scripture like commissioned and called pastors and elders. Our enemy does not want us to pray together, especially with people that think differently than us. Our enemy does not want us to serve one another. But our enemy does want us to draw lines in the sand and die on hills that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. And our enemy does want us to experience relational strife and division, usually by friendly fire. Our enemy does want us to prioritize our personal freedoms and preferences over our shared faith. But brothers and sisters, may we have eyes to see what's really going on. May we have eyes to see and ears to, and ears to hear and a mind to comprehend that the real battle is not between you and me. The real battle is not between one another. That's called collateral damage. The real battle is cosmic and spiritual. And I pray that we as a church would see the very nature and purpose of the church. That we would see that we have a formidable enemy. Again, John 10.10, Jesus says this, he wants only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's his mission. How's he doing? Pretty good. But guess what? God is greater. Jesus says this, yeah, this is what the enemy, that's his, this is his mission. He says, I've come to give you life. I've come to give it to you abundantly. I've come to help you flourish. I've come to help you grow. I've come to help you exalt the name of Jesus. I've come to indwell you. So brothers and sisters, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. Can we turn off the news forever? Could we saturate our minds and our hearts in the scriptures? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. The media commentators I don't care what opinion they have. They're not words of life. Jesus has the words of life. Can we be fixed on him through the scriptures? Can we look up instead of looking horizontally? A.W. Tozer, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Unity is not the result of a focused and determined effort on unity. 
Unity is the result of the fruit when the saints of God are fixing their eyes on Jesus. That's how we experience unity. That's what will grow the church, both in depth and I believe even in number. May we encourage one another with these things. Jesus says this, and I believe that we need to let this resonate in our minds. Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Could we be a church that we are watching, not the news, but we are watching things from God's vantage point, and that we would be persistent and constant in prayer? May we be a church that gathers, who's committed to our regular gathering. Not because I can check it off the list. Not because God loves me more if I do or don't. But because we need each other. Let us think about ways to stimulate to one another to love and good deeds. One of the greatest ministries that takes place on a Sunday morning is not just this. But it's when you leave and it's in your conversations. It's when you choose to go beyond the surface and into the heart and say, what is God doing in your life? Let's testify about those things. Let's encourage one another with those things. But could I just encourage you with this? Would you pray every single day this week? You might say, Aaron, I already pray. Good, keep doing that. But would you pray specifically for two, three things? And I'm going to pray for us in closing. Awesome. I want you to pray for the global church. Pray for the church in Afghanistan. Pray for the church in Liberia. Pray for the church in Uganda. Pray for the church all over the place. Brothers and sisters of Christ, the invisible church that we don't know personally, but we will one day spend forever with. Pray that they would be faithful. Pray that they would stand strong. Most places in the world have not had the luxury of freedoms that we have had our whole life. They only know dictatorship. But pray for our church too. We're not immune to attack. And there's a lot of conversation. And every time, I don't even go into it, but let's just say there's a lot of reason to feel distracted. The current is taking people everywhere. I pray that we would pray for our church, that God would maintain the unity of our church, that he would not let our enemy have any more division, any more strife. No more. Would you pray every day this week for IBC? And thirdly, somewhat different, would you pray for the teachers that are starting school this week? Being a teacher is already difficult in and of itself. But being a teacher under very strenuous circumstances isn't, doesn't sound fun at all to me. 
but it's critical, it's vital, it's important. So pray for your teachers. They're engaging people. There are lost, broken kids coming to school. What if they came to school broken, but they left healed? What if they left whole? Because I met so-and-so. So let's pray that our teachers remain faithful and true. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, enough is said. You've spoken, and we're listening. Father, I do pray that IBC, that you would protect this, this body of believers. We know that you move your people all around, and we, and we, and we celebrate that, Lord. We know that you move people on in different ways and we celebrate that too because if that's your leading, then we celebrate what you are doing. But Father, we also know we have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He loves division. He thrives when there's strife. And I pray that that would not be true of this church family. May we see the battle for what it really is. May we see what's really at stake. May we be a church family who is united around the lordship of Jesus, who is our Savior and who is our King. May we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, we ask that you would help us in that. We know we are prone to wander, but help us for your glory, for your honor, and for the sake of your church.